Hey, I'm Dylan Collins, CEO of Super Awesome and the host of the Kid Tech Podcast, where we go behind the scenes of the kids' digital media space uh, to talk about the trends, the movers, the shakers, and on this episode, the history of what has come before. This is an amazing conversation with Wayne Merrifield. He was a co-founder of Club Penguin, which in so many ways was a precursor of what we understand as the metaverse today. You're going to enjoy this one. Okay, Lane Merrifield, you are many things. You are the former co-founder of Club Penguin. You are also the founder of Freshgrade, which I think was acquired last year. You are also previous Dragon on CBC's Dragon's Den. You are a pilot, and you are you are several other things. I'm sure I'm, I'm not even listing there. Is that is, is that a reasonable <laughs> summary? Then? Uh, I think that's about enough. That's that's about <laughs> yeah yeah that that pretty much covers it. I think we're good there. I'm also a dad, you know, uh, and I like the outdoors. So you know, long walks on the beach. I figure that that pretty much covers it. <laughs> it's 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 a very impressive portfolio. So we're we're going to talk about a lot of things, um, but I want to um, really sort of dive into one area at least first and see where we go. So as I mentioned, you launched uh, Club Penguin with Lance Pre in 2005. Um, it was acquired by Disney in 2007. Um, it at the time spawned, I think it's fair to say, like an entire industry of, you know, browser based, what was then called virtual worlds, you know, Washi Monsters, Pop Tropica, Bin Weevils, many, 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 many others. Um, Roblox. Roblox, of course, <laughs> uh, going back yeah, to that yeah. time. I mean, look, it's the precursor to many things. But but before we get into like the the the, the fast followers. Can you remind the audience, like, what the digital landscape was like at the time? Because that was very <laughs> different than today. Right? Oh boy, it is funny. You know what? It's it's. Uh, sorry, I'm just gonna. I'm just closing my door here. One second. Um, it is a it is a funny thing now to go back. Um, I used to always mock my parents whenever I'd hear like old stories of what it used to be like back in the day, and I feel like. I'm giving my kids more and more justification for that every day, um, especially when we talk about what the internet used to be like and what gaming used to be like, and 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 not just what it was like from a consumer perspective, but what it was like to build and create products uh, in this landscape was really interesting. So, yeah, a couple of things that were were interesting. This new game had been launched a few years prior called World of Warcraft, uh, which was kind of a hot new up and coming, uh, which was which was subsequently interesting because all it really took was a property that had originally been in a packaged um, standalone game and brought it into this online kind of, uh, uh, you know, persistent, um, virtual space, which, which was kind of all the rage, certainly from a more kind of hardcore gaming perspective. Uh, at the same time, you had like AOL chat rooms where the way people were socializing, um, uh, Dateline was covering, you know, should you even allow your kids near a computer, uh, on very regular, uh, occurrences. Um, and for good reason, because frankly, it was a bit of the wild west. Um, and, and what's funny is I still keep a article that was published in the early days of Club Penguin. You know, we had chosen a subscription model because we didn't want to have a bunch of ads thrown in front of kids. We saw that happening already. We weren't huge fans of it at the time. Um, and, uh, and having kids ourselves, we thought, hey, maybe there's enough parents out there that are willing to pay five bucks a month for an ad-free space for their kids. And I kept the article that was written in the, and, and in the article, it was kind of a overview of this new thing called Club Penguin that had, that had been launched. And in there, the reporter says, um, you know, although their optimism can be admired, 
Um, eventually they're gonna grow up and realize the only way to make money uh, with the internet is through advertising. And this notion that they'll ever be able to make a dime through subscriptions uh, will be will be discarded and and they'll have to learn, you know, they'll have to learn like everyone else that ads are the only way to make money online. Fast forward to today, we all have about 74 different subscriptions, you know, hitting our credit cards every single month. And yet we were openly mocked for it. In fact, even when reporters would ask us, why did you choose a subscription model? Like that doesn't make any sense. I'm like, well, we're adding about four to five hours of new content every week. It's it's there's all even that was a novel thing because back right. then you know World of Warcraft would launch something maybe quarterly or semi annually there'd be kind of um, these big launches we were doing parties and events before anyone was doing parties and events in fact there wasn't even a term for live ops uh, really back then or live right. ops was purely a IT you know it was, it was your server support right. not necessarily the the community you know managing the community and the live experiences so it was a it was a weird time and and Flash the technology that we built it on. Um, was mostly used for banner ads. So even when people would ask, you know, what's the technology and how are you doing it? I mean, we were using like web-based socket servers and and this banner ad technology to produce a game that had, you know, three or 4 million kids logging in a day right. at the time, you know, in the early days, and obviously it grew from there. Right. And um, did, and, did you, uh, like at the, at the time, did you, I mean, when you talk about sort of live ops and, and, and the level of kind of content drops, I mean, did you, Think of Club Penguin more as a community rather than as a game at the time. Like, what was where? Where was your sort of design slider? Yeah. So, first of all, we even internally we called Club Penguin our community management machine. It was a it was a CMM um, because we really you know yes it was a game, but the magic of it we knew from day one was in the community. And so even now, I'll give talks and share with with uh, you know game designers who will do things like openly mock the amount of customer support we had or openly mock the fact that we had three or 400 people taking phone calls every day and that we didn't have quotas uh, or time quotas assigned to them. And people were like, oh yeah, it must be nice to just throw away a bunch of money. I'm like, no, 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 no. You know, every email was replied with an email. Every phone call was picked up. Every, every uh, written letter that we would get from kids was replied to with a written letter. All of that was part of the same system. Wow. As far as we we're concerned, it was all interconnected. If a child is going to be engaging, is going to engage with us, we will engage with them. If it happens through a website, if it happens through the game, if it happens through a blog, if it happens through a form or through a phone call, either way, it is about this relationship that we're building with our community and that they're building with each other and doing everything we can to support that. And that was how we we saw it. That's how we viewed it. And what what was I mean? You know, you you sort of referenced some. Um, you know, applications that that now sit within antiquity, like um, AOL and, and things like that. But like, what was what was the vision behind that level of of sort of multi-channel interaction with kids? Because I mean, to your point, I mean, Warcraft was a very different thing to that at yeah. that point. What, like, what what where were your influences coming from? Yeah, so you know, obviously there were some uh, there's some. Uh, mostly the closest thing to a virtual world were some of these RPGs and uh, that were out there, you know, RuneScape was growing. We took a lot of our inspiration um, in terms of kind of the, the content drops and the frequency They were, you know, I think we we're still doing a little bit faster, but, um, but the idea that the game is never complete, it's never boxed and shipped. And then, and then, and then over because we are an internet based property, we almost, and we were all web developers before we started diving into this. Um, both myself and, and Lance had been involved in that for years. So we actually treated the game almost more like a website, which is, hey, 
websites in order to keep them fresh they have to be dynamic they they can't be kind of static and so how many you know and so we just kind of took that same approach to it um uh and honestly a lot of it was around we kind of used we used real world analogies as much as we could so we would talk about things like playground um we didn't have levels in our system so there wasn't like you know level one and level two and, and all these kind of traditional game mechanics what we said was hey the value and the and the magic of watching a kid play with you know there's there's the old joke that like come christmas time there's nothing more frustrating than spending hundreds of dollars on some new fancy toy for your kid and realizing they're more excited about the paper box it came in or the cardboard box it came in than they are with right. the toy itself right um, in fact lance lance Preeb always threatened that he, one day he would start a toy company called the cardboard box company and, he, and all it would do is sell different size cardboard boxes <laughs> you know now there's amazon so they're kind of handling that for him but but um but this idea and the notion that uh, sparking a kid's imagination and just giving them tools to utilize it is infinitely more meaningful and powerful than giving them a game on rails where they have to, you know, grind this and accomplish that and treadmill this and and then try to get to the next level. So our perspective was simply, hey, let's first of all, we connected and engaged with the community on everything. So every launch was previewed. Every um, we would pull the the audience. In fact, I pulled the kids uh, frequently. Um, in fact, we would send our writers through uh, improv classes as part of their training before they would be allowed to start working on the project because of how often we would start a storyline having in the game, having no idea where it was going to go and intentionally almost creating and starting an improv experience with our audience. So for instance, we would hide you know, one time we hid this white fur. There's a tuft of white fur discovered at the end of this, um, at the end of this game, at the end of this mystery. And, uh, and kids immediately, the blogs lit up, YouTube lit up, all the channels, you know, what's the white fur? What does it mean? Blah, blah, blah. Mm. And what was amazing is we would just sit back and watch and listen and observe. And we had this massive team that was, you know, monitoring all these different channels and kind of gauging what was happening. And this, you know, we didn't have discords, you know, we couldn't, they were, it wasn't as organized as that. We had sure. to go to them, right? We had to have people who are scouring YouTube and going right. on various kids forms and websites. But, but this white fur came up and, and instantly kids started going, Oh my gosh, wouldn't it be cool if it turned out to be this, or wouldn't it be lame if it turned out to be this, that. And all we did was measure all these different things, bring it back to our writers and our creatives and say, and our designers and go, okay, here's what kids want to see happen with this white fur. Now, how do we incorporate some of those ideas into the world? And so the more that we put our own ideas to the side and just brought their ideas to the life, the, the better and, and, the, and the bigger it grew. And, and so, you know, what, what did the white fur end up becoming? Ended up becoming actually one of the first nemesis in our game who was, uh, who, uh, you know, was a, a polar bear named Herbert um uh who had left the north pole on his way to the south pole um actually on his way to the equator because he wanted to be warm he fell asleep on the iceberg woke up at the south pole with a bunch of penguins and was all pissed off about it and hates the penguins as a result so uh <laughs> all of that came from us just tossing a little a little graphic in there and then and then obviously um uh listening and that's the biggest mm -hmm. thing is that you know the two a couple of rules that required with club penguin everything had to be inter interconnected whether it was online or off so it's funny now you know this whole this whole notion of like these you know, persistent the metaverse I, I keep hearing two things you know to me when i hear metaverse i hear a persistent consistent world mm -hmm. where no matter how you choose to engage with it it is um uh, you know, one thing is always impacting the other. So your experience in it is always going to be consistent. So we had to get special permission from Apple to be able to have our 
our uh, early, you know, iPod games and iPad games be able to feed back coins into our system. We had to get special permission from right. Nintendo to be able to upload the coins after you finish the DS game back into your Club Penguin account. We had, to, I mean, I, I sat, the amount of conference rooms I sat in with, with top levels of these companies, tr pleading with them to say, we just at least let us upload some coins because this world has to be consistent. And if they've earned the coins in one platform, they have to be able to, they have to reflect back into their main experience. Wow. I mean, you guys invented so many of those things that have now been productized. It's, it's kind of remarkable to listen to it. And, and I mean, I think the storytelling aspect is so fascinating because I feel that you get a lot of traditional kids media folks who sort of say, oh, digital and games have killed storytelling. Like, but it, it, it sounds like it was a really, a really important factor. How much was timing? um involved here because I mean, you, you did, built amazing things engaged the community did all the stuff like would it have worked two years earlier three years earlier um so i think there's a it's a really good question uh you know obviously the answers i don't know but i'll i'll, I'll pontificate for a moment uh, <laughs> please do i think i think we i think we okay so let's start with sooner so maybe we, if we would have launched a couple of years earlier um, the original code was based, was built on Flash 6. And if you remember, like Flash had all these different iterations and frankly, sure. the bank then had all these different iterations in terms of what the technology could do. And what's funny is then, you know, of course, you know, Adobe got in a war with Apple, you know, mm. Flash turned into a pariah. And frankly, the technology didn't fully keep up with the internet. And eventually we had HTML5 and WebGL and all these great technologies that are far superior. But there was, you know, I think hitting the moment in time, one of the, one of the genius elements of Lance Preeb, the co-founder, was his ability to just take the simplest approach to almost, almost inherently. In the way that, like, now people give talks and, you know, seminars on, you know, finding simplicity. Lance was always the guy who's just like, you know what? Why don't we just do this? That'd be easy. And it's like, right. yeah, why don't we just do that? And I think what, what he created and what, what ultimately came from that was a very unencumbered process. So we could have a cool idea on a Monday, throw it into art, throw it into you know our engineering team and be launching it by Thursday. Um, and back then that just didn't happen with any kind of software. Even websites would have to go through like two weeks of you know review processes and you know you're you're pre-pumping your SEO and your SEM and there's all this kind of work that would have to go into that. For us, um, the magic of it was we we created a machine that allowed for this real-time dialogue with the community. Mm. And then we just did our best to frankly not screw it up. Okay, so now fast forward a few years later, right? Flash is now effectively discontinued. You've right. still got, you know, I think there's at the time, and again, these numbers sound small now because everyone's on the internet. So it's like, you know, nothing's sure. interesting unless it has a billion players. Um, but back then, if you consider just a kids only audience, you know, even getting, still 20, 30 million kids mm. uh, on a weekend was a, was a big deal. Um, and I think, uh, you know, what was interesting is, is eventually the same thing that allowed Club Penguin to exist ended up becoming um, a bit of a bit of wide shutdown in that, you know, the Flash couldn't continue to support, you know, it wasn't being supported anymore. It was being ripped out of browsers. Uh, we couldn't continue to run it as is. And this is a little bit after I'd left, but you know, Disney did a big effort to kind of migrate it onto mobile and onto new platform. And ultimately it, it was, uh, you know, it, it, it was a bit of a failed effort, unfortunately. So um, I think there's, I think the moment in time, uh, the moment in time was, was meaningful. Uh, I will say there's, 
there was other projects that I tried to launch at Disney back then because I spent five years at Disney after the acquisition. It wasn't right. like an exit plan for us. We needed infrastructure and we needed global, you know, we needed global resources and global uh, um, locations to be able to support yeah. these kids. So that was a big part of the, the acquisition for us. But uh, for five years, I tried to, you know, we were like, hey, how do we take Club Penguin? And, you know, we talked about building a giant virtual theme park. We talked about interconnecting all of these different mm -hmm. virtual worlds together, acquiring some new ones. It was this, you know, whole grand vision. And ultimately, for a variety of reasons, it ended up being killed. Um, mm -hmm. And, that, you know, and I left obviously shortly after that. Um, mm -hmm. And and what's, but what's encouraging to hear is, uh, you know, when when Disney recently announced that they're, Jumping into the metaverse, I got about 30 or 40 text messages from former, you know, fellow Disney executives who are like, I hope they kept your old decks. I hope they kept, yeah, I hope they, <laughs> I hope they hung on to some of those old strategy books and, and strategy uh, documents that were written up. Um, so I think, you know, in that case, and to be fair to them, I think a lot of it was maybe a little bit early for what the technology was going to allow for and, yeah. and, uh, and what was possible. So I think timing as it relates to tech is, is, okay. is meaningful. Um, and then, of course, no one can fully predict the moment in time just for culture. And and sure. uh, and I think what we were able to tap into was a lot of fear. There's a lot of fear around the Internet. Kids have been largely just ignored. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, many like me when I was younger were sneaking on to these more grown up experiences than what we should have been because right. there wasn't anything for us. And so rather than say, OK, well, let's just try to ban all kids from the Internet. We said, well, let's especially the social Internet. We said, well, let's let's create a space that that works for them and that's safe for them. Um, and I think we tapped into something no one knew was really there yet. Mm -mm -mm. And they've they've um, they've certainly become a like a magnified force since then. Um, you know, in, in in ways that I think is is still surprising everyone, quite frankly. Um, the the when you think about your and Lance's sort of legacy in terms of the metaverse today. Like there are so many things that you've described that I'm sure a lot of people listening to this right now are going, oh, that looks like that. And that's it's like, oh, I see how all <laughs> these things connect, right? And that's one of the reasons I, I wanted to have this conversation. But from from your point of view, when you look at at, at sort of platforms like Roblox and, and Fortnite, older audience, but Minecraft, like where do you see some similarities in particular where you go, oh yeah, that was like that, that, that was really ours or, or things that, that you're impressed by. Does anything jump out? Yeah. Well, first of all, let me say, I think, you know, Minecraft, what Minecraft and Roblox did was build, you know, utilize the tech of their time to do something that frankly we couldn't have done earlier on. So a lot of the content that was being produced in Club Penguin had to be produced internally and it was arduous. We had, sure. you know, 30 or 40 artists we had almost 100 engineers because everything was manual there weren't these pre-built tools like there are today there was no unity there was no um uh you know unreal or i mean there was unreal but that was more on the triple eight side there wasn't it didn't right. have the tool set it has today um so so yeah so i think you know um you know what they've created i guess my point is i would say they created what what for their time uh amazing building tools that we couldn't have done in Penguin, yeah. at least when we first launched. Yeah. And so they're a bit different or unique in that. What is interesting to find, you mentioned Fortnite. Um, and, and what was interesting is I was talking to a friend about this and I'm like, man, it's really cool. I love seeing the, uh, you know, concerts and, mm -hmm. you know, live events and parties and, um, you know, seasonality of different activities and, and, you know, different, they call them seasons. 
And I was talking to a friend and they're like, well, yeah, you know who's there, right? And and they started listing and they're like, oh, so-and-so's there, so-and-so's there, so-and-so's there. And it's a lot of our old Club Penguin team who 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 then were brought into the Fortnite team. And I'm not saying that that's the only reason they did it. Obviously, there's a lot that goes into these things. But it is great to see. I, I do love to see, you know, uh, little hints of it. I mean, frankly, even subscription models. Mm. Um, you know, we I sat with Eddie Q uh when i was at disney lobbying apple to allow for subscriptions in gaming mm-hmm. because uh at the time they were only allowing individual purchases right. or microtransactions and we said well we don't want to have to try and migrate our whole game into a microtransactions you know scenario our parents are used to paying a monthly amount we want to be able to do that but they didn't there was no apple arcade there was no the only subscriptions that were allowed were for newspapers so we ha- we were basically sitting there arguing with like the top brass at apple that we were, here's why we're like a newspaper. <laughs> we launch content on a daily basis. We, you know, is weirdest meeting in the world. And I, so I, I'm glad that now these types of battles aren't things that current right. game developers have to face. Um, but the one thing that I'd say that I'm most proud of when it comes to legacy uh, is the notion of uh, community being community driven and mm. really getting out of the way it's so funny how how hard it is still in the game industry for people to get out of the way and let the community decide these things um you know it's not our nature to give up control and especially when you've got you know a lot of folks who are able to build these games are a lot of folks who you know based on their background or their tendencies or whatever uh you know part of why you love building stuff like this is because you can do something that other people can't Mm. and because you have a vision that you want to give to the world and ironically, what we would have to do, in fact, Lance had a term for it, he would call it crushing the joy. We would get these amazing hotshot engineers in or artists in who are like, oh man, I can't wait to unleash my my beauty and my majesty to this community. And we would have to sit them down and go, hey, it's not about you. It's like, no, no, I know. But listen, you don't know my pedigree. I, you know, launched this triple right. title. I've done this thing. I've done this thing. And, and, and now it's finally time for for my gift and my magic to be given to the Club Penguin kids. <laughs> And I'm like, no, it's it's not about you, man. It's it's about them. They're going to tell us what to build. They're going to tell us what to create, and we're going to listen. That's all we do. Mm-hmm. And um, and in fact, all, one of the things I would I would often do is bring some of these folks to the theme parks because at the time when Disney first acquired us, they actually had um, some of the penguins uh, in in the giant costumes at Disneyland and at Disney World running around. Uh, and and it was a it was a short stint. Boy, what a trip to see something that like you know you helped create on a piece of paper, walking yeah. around as a character at the theme parks. But one of my favorite things about that, um, and I'm so thankful for the folks at the parks who allowed us to do this. They kept saying, "Okay, well, who's the like who's the celebrity penguin?" That's like, okay, well, we have a couple character penguins that kids will recognize. Captain Rockhopper was a character that we'd bring in. Again, we'd bring in. He'd visit the island for you know short days. Right. He wasn't a he, he wasn't an, an NPC. He wasn't a bot. He was actually puppeted by actual people behind the scenes, which again was a bit of a first back then. Um, and uh, and so we had Rockhopper in the theme parks, but we also had a character that we just called Blue, and all it was was a generic blue penguin that we made. Um, so anytime Rockhopper was there and kids were standing in line to get Rockhopper's signature, the Blue Penguin would work the line of kids asking kids for their signature. And mm. and it would point to it, and you'd get all these kids who are like, "Wait, what? No, no, I've got my signature." But they're like, "No, I know, but I need. I want you to sign." And the parents would be like, "No, he wants you to sign the book." And and the whole mm. notion of this was that it wasn't just about Captain Rockhopper. We weren't these creators who were just, you know, bequeathing our brilliance onto these children. 
it was like, no, kids are the stars. Kids are the ones that we should be asking for their signatures as much as they're asking from ours. And, and this notion that it's all about the community was, was, was it. And what's funny is now I, you know, now I read articles on web three and I'm like, totally agree. Yeah. That's it. It's, it's all about putting power back into the community to decide where these things go and taking it away from kind of some of these larger, uh, you know, centralized corporations. And do you think, um, uh, like when you cast your mind back to then, I guess, between sort of 07 and, and 2012, right. And, and hold that sort of sensation in your head when you were thinking about the future, like, and then flash forward into 2022 today, like, how much of what you thought was going to be in place is there? I mean, I guess like in terms of the creator tools that we just talked about, definitely they're in abundance. But like, if you had like, when you were when you were in Disney and, and you were at that stage where everything was possible and the future was unlimited, like, you know, and like to, to define this, I suppose, as broadly as you want. I'm, I'm curious what, what is there and what is yet to be built or yet yet to manifest? Um, boy, it's a, it's a really interesting question. Uh, so yeah, I mean, obviously like anything you make predictions, some of them are true, some totally come out of left field. So things mm-hmm. like, I mean, I think what's most surprising to me is, is the monetization that's happening now. Uh, and as fast as it's happening around ideas like community driven and web three. So NFTs were something I never forecasted. I never expected. Mm-hmm. I think it's brilliant. I love the idea. And I'm not talking about, you know, just the board ape stuff. I'm talking about this idea of allowing something, a digital asset to be, you know, in this case minted or to be kind of identified um, as a, as an asset that can be held and kept by one individual person and not just infinitely replicated. I think there's something amazing to that, that I never saw coming, you know, nor did a lot of other people. Um, But I'm certainly excited about it and the future that it means for gaming and for, and for entertainment. Um, Again, beyond just the, the art pieces, but I think using it as a platform for a lot of other things, kind of like the blockchain. Everyone goes, oh yeah, it's all about Bitcoin. No, 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 that's okay, sure. it's one no, yeah. very thin slice of, but there's a lot of interesting things that are gonna come from that. I, I think that I feel the same way about kind of NFTs. Um, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of that. Uh, what's interesting though about your question too, is that, um, you know, there's certain things that we kind of saw. I mean, there's like, there's this whole platformization move that was gonna happen. There's a big tool set push that we saw. You know, mm-hmm. in fact, one of the battles that I lost when I was inside of Disney, quite famously, uh, was a battle to use utilize a third party platform for our technology versus hmm. um, this mentality that we have to build everything ourselves, right. um, or we have to we have to own you know all of the tech all of the time. Um, I've been advocating saying, hey, listen, we didn't own Adobe Flash yet. We built successfully on it, and you know built something that that kids love. Um, let's stay in our lane. Let's do what we do best, and let's not try to build this thing from scratch end to end. Um, and that was. Uh, yeah, that was unfortunately one that uh, that uh, the higher ups disagreed with, and and uh, and the rest is history. But hmm. but I uh, you know so I, I'm I'm a big fan of that. I think um, and and now and now as the tool sets have gotten you know I mean back then it was like Unity was just coming on board. You know right. Unreal was obviously getting more and more accessible. Um, now you've got whole platforms like Roblox, where I mean Roblox famously is will say like we don't have an art style. We don't have a, right. this is not, we, we don't create a lot of first party content. We are tool makers. We are a platform maker. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just kind of took it to the, took it to the very end nth degree. Um, I think though, what's interesting to talk about is what hasn't changed. Mm. Um, 
the amount of things that haven't that have remained the same have had different names associated and different taglines and different press headlines associated with it. But at the end of the day, you know, a desire, and this is one of the things I talk about, you know, a lot in my new gig, but um, the desire for kids to want to, you know, connect with each other, um, collaborate with each other, not just compete, right? Most mm. 98% of gaming is, is competitive play. But if you look at play patterns and the way that we evolved through childhood, you know, we start, you know, you, you've got things like parallel play and co-play that lead to then, um, you know, cooperative play, mm. but then go into competitive play. And you don't really hit competitive play until usually like your, you know, early teens. And yet 98% of gaming is chasing after competitive play. So if you just look at basic things like that, and these are, these are notions and these are studies that have been around for decades. And yet it's interesting to find out how few games still, you know, really embrace, um, really embrace cooperative play in a powerful, meaningful way. Right. Mm. Oftentimes it's co-op, but it's co-op to compete, right. Yeah, versus yeah, yeah. versus right. co-op in a way where kind of all boats rise. So there's a lot of interesting things around that. Uh, kids, you know, the notion of kids desire for agency, um, the notion for kids, uh, and when I say kids, I just mean, frankly, any players and all that, sure. um, yeah. a lot of those things have remained the same. Um, yeah. And no matter how much the world has changed around it. And I think what's really cool is that it's fun to watch these cycles where, you know, something big hits. I mean, you mentioned Club Penguin and the amount of virtual worlds that came afterward. I stole the headline where it was like 160, it was like the, a year after the Disney acquisition, 100 and whatever, 72 new virtual worlds to be launched this year, you know, because obviously VCs raced in and ev everyone who had a, you know, there's a monkey world and there's a cat world and there's a dog world, every animal under the sun. I think there was even a aardvark world and all sorts of things went crazy. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, you see the same patterns happen now with like everyone wanting to create a building game and everyone wanted to create a, it's a Minecraft, right? And, and that's natural. I get it. Um, but where I love to look at these days are like, what's kind of, where are those slices in between that are kind of being ignored right now hmm. um, that aren't getting the headlines, um, but that are still connected to the, to, to who we are as humans and the power of a good story. Um, you know, we've been storytellers since the dawn of humanity, since mm -hmm. we were painting on cave walls and telling stories in front of campfires. Um, how are we taking that notion and the power that that has deep in our psyche, deep in our, you know, monkey brain or whatever, um, uh, and bringing that to life. And, right. and I think, you know, it's interesting to see different things that hit mm. when they kind of tap into these powerful human um, traits and connections and then have everyone look like surprised at them. It's like, no, 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 it's because it's a, it's a, right. it's tapping into this, it's tapping into that, you know? And, and I'm not just talking about the scientific dopamine hits that we're all familiar with, with social media and everything else, but it taps into like some of the nature of who we are as humans and brings that to life. And that's exciting to watch. Um, It's sort of a related question, I guess. Do you think community, digital community has gotten better or worse since Club Penguin? <laughs> Ah, well, I think the word's been bastardized, that's for sure. Um, so I don't know if that's maybe the answer. Uh, what's so funny to me is like, you know, like I'll see these like, I'll see these, you know, uh, ads on LinkedIn for, you know, looking for a community manager, you know, and it's like, we're wanting to grow our audience by 62% next year. And da -da -da -da. we're looking for a community manager to, to make sure that happens. It's like, Mm -hmm. No, it's a, you're looking for a marketing manager. You're looking right. for growth. It was a fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But holy shit, has community become, you know, the, the buzzword that now just encompasses everything. 
Mm. Um, and so, and so that's interesting. Uh, I will tell you this, there's a lot of elements that we did to kind of build and create a sense of community back in, uh, back with Club Penguin that I'm surprised still isn't being done today or hasn't been replaced. You know, there's a lot of elements right. uh, that look a lot like Penguin and we've talked about some of that, but there's a lot of, there's some interesting elements that even with Web3 and, you know, the tech mm-hmm. has gotten so good and so fast and so easy. You know, I mean, you can do with three or four engineers that took us a room of 50 engineers back in the day, right? right? That's just, that's everything. Um, but there are certain elements um, uh, yeah, there's certain elements, even the way the companies are structured right now tends to lend itself towards a more disassociated mm. relationship with the community. Mm. Um, or you put in some community managers or four or five community em- employees, and they're basically operating as, you know, higher level customer support people. Right. But, um, but you don't, again, at least I can't point to a lot of examples of where a founder is, is interacting on various channels daily with the audience. I mean, I would spend an hour and a half almost every day um, replying to our own blog posts and forum posts, um, uh, replying on kids, you know, YouTube channels, um, making comments. I mean, I was, I was all over that stuff because uh, I, I wanted, I, our goal was to try and flatten this kind of notion of like, there's the creator, there's the game developer, and then, and then the consumer, the game consumer. Mm. For us, it really was about like, hey, we've all got a role to play, and and how can I tell my team that that they need to listen to 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 the kids and and respond to the kids if I'm not doing it myself? So it was a little bit of a discipline as well that I just wanted to instill. Um, but it's you know it's easy to escape to our to our offices or now our home offices right. and leave right. that to to the community managers to deal with and not mm. really um, not really incorporated in the rest of the company. Is that, I mean, I'm sure you must get like a lot of founders pitching you sort of things in this general space, but like on that point, I mean, do you, do you, do you see a difference in founders today versus how you were when you started Club Penguin versus sort of anywhere in between, like in terms of how they think about this same topic? Like, is there a sort of a DNA thing there a little bit that people think more about more from a kind of an abstracted product point of view today when building a thing rather than storytelling or, or, or people? Is, is there a thing? That- yeah, I, I can't say that it's really different today versus yesterday versus 10 years ago. I can say that it is, it, it's probably, it probably actually feels more consistent, which is exactly what you just said. There's, there are founders that kind of have an abstract idea or, or kind of uh, take an idea and are now racing through to execution. And as part of that execution, you know, the audience and the community is going to kind of play into that. And, and that's a very normal thing. And in fact, what's interesting right now is to see the difference. You know, one of the things we had to straddle with Club Penguin was even the way we developed. You know, if you were to look at our org chart and our structure from outside, half of it looked like, uh, you know, uh, kind of app or web development kind of company in terms of the speed that we are kind of moving. And the other half looked more like entertainment, like a movie studio or like Pixar or something like mm-hmm. that. Even though we weren't launching something every, you know, year, we launched something every week. So it was kind of this weird hybrid. All that to say, I feel like um, what, uh, boy, when I see people pitch, um, when, I, when, we, when I talk to other potential founders, one of the things, I'll tell you what I look for the most in ideas that I'm willing to get behind and, and plug in with. Um, the secret sauce that I still feel like is missed all the time. Um, I mean, the good news was back in the day, being an entrepreneur was having the best idea. 
And then everyone saw a bunch of ideas fail or frankly be poorly executed. And then all the VCs stood up and said, hey, I'm not just looking for a great idea, I'm looking for someone who can execute. Ideas are a dime a dozen, right? Gary Vee talks about this shit all the time. Uh, okay, great. So now we've got a bunch of executors and we can execute, we truly can execute sometimes shitty ideas faster and more efficiently than ever before. We've got lean startup, MVPs, you know, all of, just great. I try to look for the next level of evolution a little bit in my view, which is yes, someone who's got a great idea, someone who can execute it, of course. But I think where we are in technology right now is at a time where, where one thing is more critical than any. And that's what I look for when I, you know, and anyone I talk to and work with uh, is a sense of empathy. Mm. Because in early tech, you had a bunch of 20 somethings, mostly dudes designing and building things for a bunch of 20 something, mostly dudes. Right. Um, that's early tech. Now we've evolved since then, thankfully, in a lot of, in a lot of ways, uh, still have some ways to go, but we are, we are now at a, at a arc in the technology timeline where this, the stuff that's left to be innovated on and to be de designed and be developed and be built requires more empathy than ever before. Cause you might be a 20 something, you know, guy or girl, engineer, fresh out of Stanford, fresh out of MIT, fresh out of wherever, you know, ready to take on the world. And the biggest, coolest, craziest idea that just came up is something for, you know, retirement communities, because we've got this baby boomer generation that's heading in there fast and furious. And, you know, where you've got some of these types of, um, it's building on behalf of, and I think there's huge opportunities still, mm. uh, because to build on behalf of requires a huge amount of empathy. It requires mm. a huge amount of humility. It requires an incredible sense of listening. It requires a CEO or a founder to be able to go, I don't know what the answer is, but mm. I'm instead going to build an engine that allows me to listen to what that answer is and respond as fast as I possibly can. And mm. if I look back over the years and look back at things I'm most proud of with Penguin, the, uh, the ability for our team to listen and respond and the fact that all of our engineering went into propping that up is something that I think was really special and something that I, I don't see as often as I wish I would um, because Peng was all about empathy. And we frankly fired amazing, not fired, but you know, we would let go of amazing rock star engineers, rock star artists, you know, I mean, pedigrees that you could only dream of because they came in the door and they tried to make it all about them. And our whole company DNA was saying, it's not about you, it's about the kids. And, and so I think insert kids with, with you know elderly with you know i mean there's some great stuff happening now in biotech but even now it's kind of a fringe you know right. ed tech was kind of a fringe you know building on behalf of teachers building on behalf of students um there's so much blue ocean there that hasn't fully been tackled yet but it requires a little bit of more emotional maturity from a founder to go do that yeah that's such an interesting observation um and i, I guess kind of running with that like where do you see the next club penguin coming from what i mean what and, and what even what even does that mean as a concept right yeah so i think again if you if you remove club penguin as a was a fun 2d you know virtual world uh you know built on flash dot 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 if you remove the like yeah. the description you know the, the 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 description of what it was and instead look at it as a community a community right. management machine um, and really this storytelling, this kind of improv storytelling machine. Um, I, I am very optimistic about, again, some of the stuff I'm seeing around Web3. Not mm. that, I mean, Web3, again, all it is is this description that says, hey, we're going we're gonna to quit trying to pour all of our resources into building up a company. 
Mm-hmm. And instead, we're going to pour our resources and time and effort into building a community mm-hmm. and realizing that the fi- financial windfalls will come from both. Mm-hmm. Um, but instead of creating something that makes it hard for people to leave and barriers of exit um, and, and uh, moats and all these things that we would talk about with like, oh, Facebook, well, why do we still have Facebook accounts? You know, no one sure. really loves logging into, I mean, I guess my parents do, but no one really loves logging into Facebook. Why do I still have a Facebook account? because I still have a lot of friends there who aren't on Instagram and who aren't on LinkedIn and who are, and I don't want to let go of those friends, right? They've built this amazing moat that keeps me from deleting my account and moving on. I think that's what's going to come to an end more and more. And I don't know exactly how it's going to happen, nor, nor does anyone. But I do think this notion of um, saying, instead of saying, how can I trap people here as mm. in every way I can, reducing that friction to instead say, how do I, how do we compete to make such an incredibly compelling tool, device, network, experience, world game, VR experience, doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. How can we, how can we move the needle to where we're competing on um, capturing imagination and minds with, because the substance and quality is so good instead of just capturing them because we make it so hard and painful to leave. Um, and I think, you know, it's a little bit like if the movie studios and back in the day they did, but if movie studios owned all of the theater chains and frankly made it incredibly difficult for an independent theater chain or theater owner to even exist, Hmm. the quality of our movies of our movies would not be as good as they are today. And so it's interesting to go back to Hmm. even a more historic tech or historic medium Hmm. like movies or television or whatever, because there is this because there is this disconnection between the distribution and the production, it meant that the, that both had to compete. So I both had to compete with the quality of my theater and, and the, and the, and the movie producers had to compete with the quality of the movie. And that competition accelerated to where I think, you know, most people, even if you go back and watch early Oscar winners, unless you're a big movie fan and a big, it's tough to watch like some of the, first 10 years of Oscar winners and go, wow, like, yes, there's attention span issues and whatever else, but, <laughs> but they're just not the same as movies are made right. today. And that's because of progress and all that. I think we need to see the same thing happen in our social networks and, and on the internet. And that's really what a big pro- part of the promise of web three is, is by dividing those two out, you know, I can't wait for the day when, uh, you know, a social network, whether it's an Instagram or a Facebook or something like that, isn't trying to trap people in, but instead right. um, competing to create such a compelling experience that you choose to stay every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, and that if you, and if you want to take your graph, your social graph and go somewhere else, you do that. That's fine. Um, because that just means the person down the street is, is competing even stronger and has produced something even better. And that competition is going to breed quality. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we're right on the cusp of that in gaming, but also in, in the rest of the internet. And that's what Web3 means to me. I'm tempted to use the word empathy verse, but that's probably terrible. <laughs> you know what? Yeah, I do love, you know, yeah, whether it's empathy verse or, or, uh, yeah, or, or just, you know, listen. I mean, that it's, it just comes down to listening, right? It's listening mm-hmm. and responding. It's no, and frankly, the, people are like, oh, where'd you kind of come up with the idea for that? I'm like, we were parents. Yeah. So much of your job as a parent is just learning how to listen and understand your kids. And it doesn't mean, taking everything literal at every moment. Yes, they demand ice cream today. Well, listening and responding as a, being a good parent doesn't mean, oh, I listen, but you want ice cream. Okay, here's some ice cream. Listening and responding is going, hang on a second. Why are you begging for ice cream every five seconds? Oh yeah, we missed lunch or you have, didn't eat much for lunch. 
right. let's go get like here's here let's dive into what the real challenge is here and then let's produce something that's going to be even more fulfilling for you than what you think you you want it's getting a layer below that i think mm. the more we can train and teach companies and and game designers and others to get to the the, the better we'll all be for well on that firmly optimistic note for the future lane merrifield thank you very much for joining us on kid tech awesome thanks Dylan. appreciate the opportunity <laughs>